Hello and welcome to episode number 143 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Tuesday, August 5th, 2014. Yes, this podcast is still in existence. It's been a few weeks since I previously published the last episode, but here we are with a new episode, and I think you will enjoy it very much. It is an interview with the podcaster and agricultural entrepreneur, Chris Stelzer, of the Agricultural Insights Podcast. I hope you will enjoy my interview with Chris Stelzer. Today on the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Chris Stelzer, who is the host and producer of the Agricultural Insights Podcast. Chris Stelzer, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. It's good to be here. We have uh, some similar sounding podcasts, don't we? Yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> you've been doing it for, what, three years now? Yeah, two or three years now. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the Agricultural Insights podcast and, you know, what it's about and the kind of guests you've had on and what you're trying to achieve with it. Okay, great. Um, that's a good question. Wow. We've had so many, I've had so many great guests on the podcast. I mean, uh, Mark Shepard, Gabe Brown, Kit Farrow, um, I've had a lot of older farmers and ranchers on there like Gordon Hazard and Walt Davis, uh, and, you know, topics ranging from aquaponics to permaculture to local marketing to internet marketing, ranching and grazing, uh, pretty much covered the gamut as far as sustainable agriculture is concerned. And, you know, my, my main goal with that podcast is just to help other small farmers and ranchers and the wannabe farmers and ranchers out there, how to just help them improve their business and, and basically become more profitable, which is something else I'm working on. I'm working on a new podcast called the profitable farm that would probably be good to mention right now, since we're talking about podcasts and the focus of that podcast will be really solely on how to make farms more profitable. And this will be really great for, you know, the small farmer and rancher out there and, it's going to be a formatted podcast. It's going to be no more than 30 minutes. So, you know, I'm taking into uh, consideration people's time and how much time they have to listen to this type of stuff because they're so busy doing uh, everything else that's associated with farming and ranching. So, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell is just bringing all this information that these experts have and bringing it to the Internet and um, having discussions about it to improve our own businesses. Great. So this is a topic that I have particular interest in. I think it's really important. And I want to get to some of the economics of small-scale farming and ranching and uh, here in a bit, and we can touch on some of the themes that are going to be featured in your Profitable Farming and Ranching podcast. Uh, but first, let's let's go over just some of the broad strokes of the podcast that you're currently producing. What uh, – are some of the things that you're learning from talking to some of these folks? Are there any themes or key points that kind of stick out that you could summarize in, you know, a few sentences or, or a few paragraphs? Um, yeah, that's a good question as well. Um, a lot of it comes down to experimenting, trying new things um, as far as how to make progress goes. 
Uh, and then basically everything comes down to carbon and getting carbon in the soil and on top of the soil to create fertility and to hold water. Um, because one unit of carbon holds 12 units of water. So that's hugely important. And then the other, another overwhelming thing, I think, or theme rather is marketing. A lot of farmers and ranchers want to earn more money for their products. They want to get into niche markets, but they don't know how to market. So that's another thing that I'll be focusing on and using the power of the internet, mobile technology, email marketing, SMS, text message marketing, phone marketing, um, you know, bringing all that into the front of our consciousness as farmers and ranchers and, you know, playing by the rules of the game, as it were, of how people live in the 21st century is a, is a big theme going forward, I think. So how are you mentioned you're, you've spoken to a lot of old time farmers and ranchers? It doesn't, you know, SMS and Twitter are not the first things that come to mind when you think of, you know, folks like Walt Davis. Uh, so how how does that fit together? Yeah, well, I think they're, you know, our experiences as younger people, we just we know how to use a computer. We know how to use a phone. I can, you know, set up a, a podcast and a website in a matter of minutes and I can send out a text message email marketing campaign in a matter of minutes as well. And I think where the value lies from talking to the older folks, the farmers and ranchers that have really been doing this for, you know, 40 and 50 years. I think where the value comes from them is just talking to them about their life experiences, how they have survived, you know, through the depression or hard economic times, mistakes that they've made. And as it relates to, you know, farming and ranching and running their businesses, there's a lot to be learned from those type of people. And, um, just that sort of intangible wisdom that they bring to the table as well. Okay, so let's let's dive right into this um, story of e- agriculture and economics for the small scale producer in the United States. I think we could probably spend the rest of the podcast talking about this subject. Now, one of the statistics that I've been bandying about lately on my podcast and blog and elsewhere is here in central New Mexico. Uh, of gross farm receipts come from 11% of the farms. And these 11% of the farms are not your small-scale mom-and-pop type farms and ranches, uh, probably that, you know, many of the people who listen to this podcast and your podcast are or are focused on. These are probably more big-scale industrial type agricultural operations. So are we just kidding ourselves and thinking that you know, the sustainable model for agriculture is something that can actually compete with this industrial model and really have an economic impact on these local economies considering the structure of the farm economy in the United States as it stands right now? Yeah, I I really don't know the answer, a definitive answer to that question, but I think um, we need to have more of a mindset like Mark Shepard up in Wisconsin has, who's, I think he's the author of the book Restoration Agriculture, and he's basically using ecologically enhancing and ecologically profitable farming techniques and ways to raise livestock. And then he's selling all those products that he produces in the wholesale or quote unquote industrial type food system. So, uh, that's one route. That's one way to go about it. Another way to go about it would possibly be, 
you know, forming cooperatives and forming beneficial partnerships or joint ventures with other local farmers to sort of start to concentrate the power in a way uh, which is beneficial to the small producer. And I know that that's not necessarily what everyone wants to hear, but, you know, just that's sort of the sense that I'm getting if we really want to go forward with sustainable agriculture and actually be an economic force. I think some type of organization needs to happen and, and what that organization look like looks like, I'm not really too sure. So let's let's continue to dig deeper on this because – I think this is really important and I think this is really the key to what's going to make or break this sustainable agriculture movement. Now, the, the notion that the small producer, well, let, let me take a step back. One of the things that I have kind of pushed people on is saying, well, industrial ag provides most of the food for the United States and that is meaningful to politicians and to others who have, you know, money and land and those types of things for a lot of reasons. And food security is one of the number one things that comes to mind. And so when I push people on this, one of the things that they inevitably respond, people in the sustainable agriculture movement, well, eventually the industrial agricultural model is going to collapse. It's going to implode. It's just not sustainable and it, it can't just keep going. So if that's the case, you know, what does that actually mean for the sustainable food movement in that we don't have the scale to actually be able to replace the existing food supply? I mean, does that, does any of what I'm saying resonate? Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. I mean, there's absolutely no way that we're just going to in the next five or 10 years or whatever suddenly, um, produce all the food that we need in the United States from sustainable agriculture that's not possible but we can start making that transition um and you know yes the system is unsustainable yes i do believe that at some point in time it will either die out or implode um and most of that's related to the economic aspects of uh our monetary system which is a whole nother can of worms uh but you know we need to focus on what are we going to do right now and um i think that even though we're, we're small, sustainable producers, we can look at big corporations and big cooperatives and look at how they're doing business, and we can pick and choose and emulate them when it comes to how we're running our business. Because, you know, even though a lot of listeners out there probably won't agree or maybe they don't care for McDonald's, there's still a lot we could learn from McDonald's uh, about their business model and about the way they do business. So I'm, I'm not saying that we need to go out there and replic- replicate what McDonald's is doing and create fast food chains based upon sustainable agriculture products. But, you know, let's look at the, the system as a whole and um, let's see how we can start to play their game and um, also make the transition to becoming more profitable and more of an economic force as it relates to agriculture. But is that the conver- I, I guess I guess part of my my rub with this is is that the conversation that we're having because you know a lot of these conferences and you know on the websites that I go to and different things that I read that people are writing it's about 
they use this combination of cover crops or they increase their stock density by X and got these results. And people are really focused on a lot of these production aspects of things. And I think a lot of times the economics and the economies of scale get so overlooked that, you know, when we have these conversations about the industrial food model compared to the sustainable food model, there are a lot of assumptions built into that, but none of it's really well thought out or or being conversed within the sustainable food movement. Yeah, I agree. yeah, I definitely agree, and I think the economic side is something that um, needs to be talked about more than the technique side of things. I mean, you know, we have all these wonderful tools now at our disposal and techniques like permaculture and high density grazing and holistic management, and you can call it whatever you want, but it's all fits under the umbrella of ecological agriculture or sustainable agriculture, whatever, you know, terminology you'd like to use. Um, but I think, I do think that the economic conversation does need to be moved to the forefront. Um, and I think the reason it's not is because it's a hard topic to talk about. There's a lot of variables. Um, but at the same time, we're just talking about numbers and there's a, and you know, there's a lot of fundamental things that, are the same no matter what type of business you're running. There's just small business fundamentals that, you know, we can start to talk about. And, um, you know, maybe economic education is the next sort of wave, if you will, within the sustainable food movement. Yeah, sure. I've made that argument uh, to quite a few people uh, over the years with mixed results. Um, and, and I do see that there's this – I'm not sure what it, what it is – I do see that there's this tendency to want to focus on the production aspects, which, which I certainly – I don't want to create the impression that I don't think that's important, but I think that you know we have focused so heavily on that over the years at the expense of some of these other conversations that we've really done sustainable agricultural disservice. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the fun and you know really attractive part about sustainable agriculture, you know. Um, I think – you know, there's there's really few things more gratifying than healing the land than healing the earth for a lot of humans. I think that resonates with a lot of people. And um, you know, talking about numbers and cash flow projections and business structure and all this sort of economic stuff, accounting, it's not really too fun and it's not the the level of satisfaction that you get from, you know, being a steward of the land. Yes, but you know, one of the things I think that some of the folks who promote the the sustainable production techniques, one of the traps that they fall into is they make it look – they don't talk about the economic numbers and people can walk away from a conversation like that thinking perhaps that it's easier than it is or that, you know, that there's real economic returns in doing it that way. And I'm not saying there is or there isn't, but it just feels like a lot of the data on that is real loose. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, that's something that definitely needs to be talked about a lot more. Um, and how, how do we go about quantifying the production value of hazelnuts or of livestock in some type of integrated system? Uh, I don't know, but I do think it comes down to the, the basic business education um, creating business plans, creating financial worksheets to actually plan through this entire process to say, hey, um, you know, this is the worst case scenario. 
how much money will I earn? Will this be enough? This is the best case scenario. How much will I earn? Obviously, it will be enough. But yeah, I do agree. I think a huge disservice has been done. Um, just talking about the, the techniques only and not even one word mentioned about the economic side of running a farm or ranch, which at the end of the day is a business. So would you characterize this situation that we're describing as a crisis for sustainable agriculture? Uh, yeah, I, I think that would be fair to say. Yes. I mean, there, there are a lot of people out there in the sustainable agriculture world that are business savvy. And I think a lot of those people are the ones that have made the transition to a more sustainable way of doing things. So maybe they started out conventionally raising beef, let's say, and, um, then they switch things around and they're, they're starting to market their own grass fed beef directly to consumers. And so they had that background of, of business management, I guess you could say, um, from the get go. The tendency is for people to attribute their success to their high stocking densities and not their business savvy. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, so now that we've kind of gotten that out of the way and obviously we're kind of on the same page with this and seeing that it's a crisis, what, you know, what are some strategies that, and I think you've kind of outlined this a little bit, but maybe spell it out a little more clearly. What are some strategies for us to really switch this dialogue and, and drive this in a different direction? Um, you know, strategies for like raising awareness or for changing our businesses. Well, let's start with raising awareness and then move into the changing our businesses piece. Well, I think, you know, just doing what we're doing now and having a conversation about it. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed, cause I grew up in the city and my agricultural experience came about when I did an intern internships, um, for over a year, so I've I've lived in the 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 suburbs and I've lived in the country, and they're two very different types of people. And I think one of the one of the things uh, I noticed is that a lot of the farmers and ranchers, country folk, don't really talk about how much money they make. Whereas you know, if you're having a conversation with your friends and you live in the city and you work for some marketing firm or graphic design agency. Um, that's not something you'll necessarily gloat about, but you know, I've had conversations about my salary and my friend's salary before in the past. So I think, um, we need to have a more open dialogue about how much money we're earning, how we can increase the amount of money that we're earning, what are some of the strategies we're using to earn more money, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the politeness of all the country folks, which is a fantastic thing, but, um, Let's get real for a minute and let's talk about how we're earning a living. Sure. And, um, you know, as far as improving our own businesses, it's um, I'm kind of going through this myself right now in the middle of doing a really extensive business plan and reading a, a lot of economic type books as it relates to business planning on accounting and finance and all sorts of the stuff that um, – isn't too fun to read about for some people, but, uh, just getting a basic business education and, you know, it's pretty easy to do that. Just take the time to sit down and, and read business books or, you know, create a biz, create a, um, business plan for a fictional business or for your own business that you're doing right now. And, you know, just the process of writing the business plan will really open your eyes to 
the reality of the situation uh, of running a business. And I was doing some research lately, um, and according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, all small businesses within the United States, um, not all, but 50% of those businesses fail after the first five years. And uh, I can't remember the statistics for after the first 10 years, um, but I think 80% of businesses fail after 10 years in business. So the um, the numbers are not good. <laughs> so um, that's definitely something that we need to take uh, into consideration more for our sustainable agriculture businesses, that's for sure. Well, in the environment that we live in, certainly it's very disruptive. I mean, I I don't remember the exact data on it, but I remember reading a long time ago about how the top 100 companies in the United States are have almost completely rolled over into new top 100 companies from 100 years ago. So even the big businesses, you know, over the long term may not last that long. Yeah, well, um, that actually makes me feel good because, um, you know, things change and things progress and the old business models and the old paradigms that we had aren't necessarily going to be successful going into the future. So that makes me feel good. Yeah, that's good. So we've kind of fleshed out the economics. I, I agree with you on, on most of the points that you've made. Just, just briefly a little anecdote I will share. I was in Bolivia for many years working with small producers and did a lot of work helping them figure out what their cost of production were, you know, again, with mixed results. Um, but certainly I was surprised in that situation to see that a lot of these, the vast majority of these producers weren't calculating their cost of production, had no idea what they were making on, you know, an onion crop. And then when I came to the United States, back to the United States, I, I just assumed that farmers and ranchers were doing that because, you know, it's the United States. Of course we're doing that. And it turns out a, a lot of them aren't. And a lot of them are in the same boat as these smallholder Bolivian farmers and other farmers in the third world, which I found rather shocking. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what that's attributed to, um, but obviously it's a huge, a huge universal problem. Um, and I think a lot of successful people out there that are in agriculture um, are are people that have come from the finance world or their accountants or something like that. So they really understand the numbers. And at the end of the day, as much as it pains me to say this, it really is it really does come down to the numbers. Obviously, um, since we're in the sustainable agriculture world, we're not going to increase profits or production at the expense of our land. I think that should be a given. But at the end of the day, it really does come down to the numbers, to the bottom line. So, I mean, I'm not saying we need to wholeheartedly focus on that, but it, it definitely does need to be a main consideration that we need to be taking. One of the things you mentioned earlier in this podcast is, uh, or in this interview was this notion of cooperatives and I've done a lot of research and background on the scientific literature surrounding plant grazing and high stock density grazing and the like. You know, one of the things that I found is unmanaged grazing herds like you would see in the Serengeti are not necessarily analogous to these much smaller scales that we're rotating our livestock on. For it to be so, we would have to be moving larger herds over much larger landscapes to, to more mimic what we see in nature. And that would require some serious cooperation among ranchers. And the cooperative economic model would require similar levels of cooperation among farmers and ranchers. Do we live in a culture that is 
hostile to that type of cooperation? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way we do and in a way we don't. Um, you know, most of us want to be independent Americans. You know, we're, we're very independent and um, competition is a good thing. We somewhat have capitalism in this country. Um, but there are, there are success stories out there of cooperative, cooperative producers. Um, can I define any of those right now with names and, and data to back that up? No, but I, I have heard of a few, you know, four or five ranchers maybe getting together, putting their herds together, uh, and running in a more cooperative manner in that regard. Um, and then there was a huge, uh, grass fed beef cooperative. I don't really remember the name of it. I was just reading about it this morning. Um, but yeah, I don't remember the name of it. So I think in a way it is, we do live in a society where the cooperation isn't necessarily taken into account. But on the other hand, I think younger people, um, I know, I know I would be really open to collaboration. I'm sure a lot of other younger people would be open to collaboration as well. Well, I re- I was reading an article about some of these older farmers, organic, mostly organic vegetable and fruit farmers who got together in California, I think it was. I'll, I'll link to that. If I can find it, I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode. Really great article. And one of the farmers, I believe his name was Huber, uh, his last name was Huber, said, look, this model of us doing this on our homesteads is dead. It's dying. It's not economic. We don't know what's going to replace it, but it's got to be something different. So some of these folks, you know, who've been doing it for a long time do see that the way that we organize ourselves economically and socially has to change for young people to be successful at this. Yeah, I'll absolutely agree. You know, I mean, young people, we don't have the, the financial landscape is completely different from what it used to be. Um, you know, and unless you get your land handed down to you by your grandfather, father, et cetera, et cetera, then it's going to be very hard for you to get started. So pulling resources together, coming together to collaborate, I definitely feel is the way forward. Um, and everyone has different interests and passions. You know, I, I'm passionate about livestock grazing and someone else I know might be passionate about tree crops and someone else I know might be passionate about annual vegetable production. So there, there are ways and models that we could come together and um, produce products on, on the same piece of land. Well, one of the things that I certainly see as a trend moving forward is microagriculture. You know, people on much smaller geographic scales producing a lot of food. You mentioned aquaponics earlier. That's a really great example of ways that this is being done. Mushroom production is another really great way that this is being done. Something that's being explored on the fringes is actually producing insects for human consumption. Uh, there's a lot of cultural issues surrounding that, but certainly the protein is high quality and, uh, it's the, the trophic levels ecologically make a lot more sense, uh, when we're thinking of, of these scales. So what are your thoughts on microagriculture as a viable economic option for young agrarians? Yeah, I'm not sure on the viability of those. It, it would come down to what the overhead costs were and what the market was like and how much you could get for your product, obviously. But I think, you know, if um, these relationships with larger farmers and ranchers aren't going to happen, uh, obviously young people are going to take it into their own hands and, and start on that micro agriculture scale. So I think it's fantastic, you know, 
Um, if New York City can start producing some of its own food, I think it's a good thing. Um, I, I just don't know how economically viable, like I said, it is. I think a lot of it would depend on the market and the marketing and um, how much people are willing to pay for what it is that you produce and how much demand there is for that product. Well, certainly – Theoretically, your fixed costs would be a lot lower if you don't have to buy, you know, a 10,000 acre ranch to be able to produce a, a high quality protein source. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, insects. I mean, I'm sure I've eaten some insects before. Um, I think it, maybe if things get bad enough, that will be a, a definitely a viable food source or maybe it'll be some, you know, weird niche where, um, a new type of diet fat or something where people, enjoy eating insects and um maybe there there's some good food that can be made from insects i don't really know well well i know it it certainly seems laughable as we talk about it now uh today in 2014 uh but i will tell you actually npr has been covering the topic of uh producing insects for human consumption and some people are taking it really seriously and see it as an important uh future food uh it's it certainly is hard for us to imagine now when beef is fairly abundant and cheap in the supermarket but you know certainly if this drought persists as some people are predicting a mega mega drought of 200 years uh it's not completely improbable to think 50 to 100 years down the road that maybe people are eating insects and the culture changes quite a bit over that time period. Sure. I, I mean, I would rather eat insects than nothing. So um, it's definitely a possibility, that's for sure. And in um, fact, some of these NPR pieces you know, show these chefs preparing these really high-quality meals out of insects. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's good. Um, I, yeah, I don't really know what to say. I haven't looked into it too much, but I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of improvement actually, a lot of dramatic improvement could actually be made using techniques that we're already familiar with, like, uh, you know, a lot of permaculture techniques, high density grazing, just increasing the amount of food that we can grow on a given piece of land. I don't even think that has been, um, been, you know, explored even to you know 10 percent of what could actually be produced on a given piece of land i mean just really intensifying the systems that we have now i think can go a long way well i think what but i think what we're discussing is the bottleneck to that level of ingenuity is getting you know young creative minds into the landscape and managing the landscape and there's this huge bottleneck to that that's related to, you know, cultural traditions and the price of land and all these things that we've already been discussing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are some creative ways to get access to land. Um, but I do agree overall, it is a huge bottleneck. Um, you know, one way is to partner with a, an older farmer or rancher, um, and maybe planting more permanent type crops on their land and giving them a share of the, the harvest, um, you know, profit sharing in some regard, just uh, there's some creative options there. I, I actually have a friend in San Diego that is actually courting investors and he wants to purchase some land and it's going to be an investment for these investors. And he's also going to throw in some real estate. So, you know, maybe these folks that have some money, there's going to be a few houses on the farm and uh, that's how he's going to get in. So, I mean, there there are a lot of creative options, and I can't begin to think of all of them, but they're they are out there. Sometimes it seems like you know we're muddling around with a lot of our cultural uh, conceptions and 
you know, some of our difficulty relating to one another as human beings. Meanwhile, you know, all these environmental and economic and other crises are accelerating around us. And, you know, I wonder if some of what we're doing is too little too late. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think people and even myself included realize how serious the problem actually is, you know, um, unless you really take a step back, unless you really um, analyze what's happening on a larger and broader scale and then try and look to see, OK, what's going to happen in the future? Um, you know, that's a lot of doom and gloom type stuff. And a lot of people make the the conscious choice to avoid that type of stuff, that type of thinking and and all the doom and gloom, as I said, that goes along with that. So um, maybe it is too little too late. I don't really know. But if you think about how little food we produce locally, that should just be enough to scare you. Sure. And and I don't want to focus on the doom and gloom aspects of it. I, but I do I just do want to suggest that sometimes it feels like there's a little bit of a lack of urgency even amongst the local and sustainable food movement. Yeah, I would agree. Sure. Anything else, Chris, uh, that you would like to discuss or share with the listeners to this podcast or, you know, anything that you that's kind of burning a hole in your mind and you want to get out there? Um, you know, I just think, uh, the business education is a really huge component. Um, if you understand the numbers and how the numbers work and how that's going to translate into making or breaking your business, you'll have a lot more confidence to maybe get that urgency that, like we just talked about, Frank, and, and go forward and, and do more and bigger things. Um, and then also people can check out my website at agriculturalinsights.com. I've got a free ebook on mob grazing there that if you, um, in exchange for your email address, you can get that free ebook emailed to you. And then also check out theprofitablefarm.com, which is a new podcast where we will be focusing heavily on how to make our farms and ranches more profitable. Yeah, and I should say, I suppose I can say this uh, at this point. You know, I worked for Holistic Management International for many years, and uh, you know, your free grazing ebook is hands down. You know, way better than the free download uh, grazing book that they offer. So, certainly, I would recommend people go check that out. Oh, oh good. Well, thank you, Frank. And um, the paid version of that ebook, I really just enhanced it. It's 140 pages, um, and it's all about grazing management. And a lot of people um, have complimented me on how easy it is to understand. And you know, since I started in a city background, I grew up in the city, and then kind of moved into the country and the ranch life, um, I thought I did a, a good job explaining some of the concepts that a lot of these people out there that have so much knowledge and experience maybe have a hard time uh, explaining. And, um, yeah, that I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now. Well, I'm glad to have you on the podcast, and I'm glad to promote the work that you're doing at Agricultural Insights. Um, glad to promote the podcast, and I know that this is something that uh, you're trying to do full time, and uh, that can be a challenge. But certainly, you know, more people as they become aware of the work that you're doing, that certainly helps you to uh, to to make uh, your aspirations a reality, and to continue to help farmers and ranchers, as you said at the beginning, which is your primary objective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you, Frank. It's a pleasure to be on here, and I'm glad to see you doing the podcast again. It's fantastic. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, 
And I'm excited about, you know, the potential for continuing to collaborate with you and the work that you're doing and, you know, to continue to share, whether it be via Twitter or, you know, to have you back on the podcast at some future date and talk about these things or, you know, just find ways to continue to collaborate. Absolutely. I think um, we've only hit the tip of the iceberg, as it were, as it relates to this economic discussion. Certainly, and it's certainly probably going to be the thing I'm going to be focusing on in my career for for many years to come. Good. Well, hey, I mean, the more that we can collaborate, come together, and educate people and help one another, one another, the more successful we'll be overall. Chris Stelter, thank you so much for joining us today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Frank. That concludes my interview with Chris Stelzer of the Agricultural Insights Podcast. I'd like to thank Chris once again for joining me. I'd like to thank him for all the great work he's doing on his podcast, and I encourage you to check that out. I'll include a link to that on the show notes for this episode. I did check out the uh, Profitable Farm podcast. It seems like there's a website for that, but no content as of yet. Maybe Chris will give us a little update on where that stands. I'm sure he's working hard to get some content for that developed. But I will link to the Agricultural Insights podcast page, and you can check that out. And as Chris said in the interview, there's a lot of great interviews on there, and I think listeners to this podcast would appreciate many of the folks that Chris has interviewed and many of the insights that those guests have to offer. Well, I would like to continue to talk about this crisis of sustainable agriculture around business management and economics, and I will do so in future episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at Agro Innovations, and you can like the Agro Innovations Podcast page on Facebook. I don't provide too frequent updates on Facebook, but I am pretty active on Twitter. So if you are on Twitter, be sure to follow me. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.